The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. And I think it is necessary in our present day situation and in the situation as it has been for a very long time to uh, complement these two topics because there are many who are even evangelical in the broad sense of the word who think that although there is election nevertheless the sovereignty of election is removed by foreknowledge and uh, the resort is to foreknowledge in order to obviate what is I believe to all of us the plain teaching of scripture namely the pure sovereignty of God's election. I remember a very distinguished evangelical giving a lecture and then in the question period afterwards he was asked, do you believe in election? Yes, he said, of course I believe in election. But you must remember that there is something else that is before election, and that is foreknowledge. And of course, obviously, he interpreted foreknowledge in a rather diluted sense. But uh, I am going to try to deal with this subject of foreknowledge on the basis of the biblical evidence to try to discover what the biblical and more specifically the New Testament concept of foreknowledge is. There are only two instances in the New Testament in which the word foreknow is used of the knowledge which men may possess on the basis of information given or on the basis of re revelation received. Only two instances, Acts 26.5 and 2 Peter 3.17. So I'm not going to deal with these, of course, because they deal with the foreknowledge of men. That is what we would call men's foresight or prescience. The other instances refer, of course, to God's knowledge, both as verb and as substantive. The verb, if you know just a little Greek, is prognosko, and the substantive is prognosis, 
which we have translated, transliterated into English, and I think we usually pronounce it as prognosis. The instances, of course, are Acts 2.23, Romans 8.29, Romans 11.2, 1 Peter 1, verses 2 and 20. And consequently, when we are speaking of foreknowledge, we are thinking of God's foreknowledge. In the sense of cognition, God's foreknowledge belongs to his omniscience and embraces all persons and things. Nothing is hid from him. And of course, the emphasis upon that in Scripture in both Testaments is very copious. I shall not cite the evidence. There is no ground, of course, for dispute respecting God's foreknowledge in that sense. But an implication is liable to be overlooked, or at least its, uh, its uh, uh, correlates are very liable to be overlooked, namely that if God foresees all that comes to pass, then with God there is no uncertainty of occurrence. Certainty respecting all that comes to pass is involved in foreknowledge, no less than in foreordination. And foreknowledge provides therefore no escape from the certainty which foreordination asserts and determines. It is of biblical faith to believe that for God there are no contingent events, no uncertain events. And believers should be assured that all the circumstances of their life are well known to him who is their God and Savior. These uh, doctrines are all of the most practical significance for a believer. And we should always, in dealing with doctrine, realize the implications for our own faith, for our own devotion. And here, of course, is an instance where the doctrine of God's foreknowledge in the sense of cognition is of the deepest moment for the consolation and the faith of a believer. Nothing is hid from his eyes. The crucial questions respecting foreknowledge arise in connection with those passages which I have cited above and expressly deal with salvation, especially Romans 8.29, Romans 11.2, and 1 Peter 1.2. In Romans 8.29 and 11.2 it is the verb, in 1 Peter 1.2 it is the substantive prognosis. Now in Romans 8.29, the expression in English is, whom he foreknew, he also did predestinate. And in 1 Peter 1, 2, 
as you remember, Peter is addressing the elect sojourners according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And uh, that, I take it, goes with the expression elect sojourners. That is, they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, these two expressions in Romans 8.29 with the verb and in 1 Peter 1.2 with the substantive are predicable of the elect and of those only. For in Romans 8.29 and 30 we have a chain of events that issues in glorification and those embraced in this chain are designated as God's elect in verse 33. It would be exegetically monstrous to try to distinguish denotatively between the elect spoken of in verse 33 and the foreknown and the predestinated spoken of in verses 29 and 30. Now likewise in the 1 Peter 1-2 passage in 1 Peter 1-1 those concerned are called elect and I take it elect sojourners in that context. So there should be no question but the foreknowledge or the foreknowing in these two instances are uh, denotatively coextensive with the elect. The question of course is what is the relation of foreknowledge to predestination in Romans 8.29 and what is the relation of foreknowledge to election in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Now it is very widely maintained that in these texts the reference is simply to God's prescience that is to God's foreknowing in the barely cognitive sense. And uh, in uh, both instances refers to his foresight of faith or more accurately his foresight of certain persons as believing whom God foresees as believing he predestinates and elects to salvation. And that is the interpretation placed very frequently upon Romans 8.29 and Romans uh, and 1 Peter 1.2 or 1 Peter 1.1 and 2. Now if that were the intent of Paul and Peter to refer in these passages simply to the prescience of God to his foreknowing in the sense of foresight or bare cognition, it would not be unworthy of the apostles to uh, refer to such, nor would it be contrary to the general tenor of biblical teaching, because God's foresight of all persons and actions is, of course, biblical doctrine. 
and uh, he foresees his people as believing undoubtedly. That, of course, is an indisputable fact that if he foresees all things, he foresees his people as believing. There is, however, an important consideration derived from the scripture teaching itself that must be kept in mind here, and that is, that faith itself is not an act or an activity of man's autonomy. It is not something of which men themselves are capable. It is a gift of God. Not a gift of God as justification is a gift of God, or as adoption is a gift of God, but a gift of God in the sense of being graciously inwrought and outwrought by God's grace. Now that was the teaching of our Lord himself, very expressly. John 6, 37, 44, 45, and 65. That is John 6, verses 37, 44, 45, and 65. And by implication it is his teaching in the discourse to Nicodemus, John 3, 3 through 8. But very expressly it is his teaching in these passages in John 6. It is Paul's teaching, likewise, in Romans 8, 5 through 9, and Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and Philippians 1, 29. And significantly enough, Peter refers to that expressly in this passage in 1 Peter 1, 1. Hence, you see, according to the teaching of, our, of Scripture, and according to the teaching of our Lord, the faith which God foresees is the faith which he has determined to give, and to give in the sense of graciously working in us to the production of faith. To use our Lord's language, the faith God the Father foresees, on that supposition, <coughs> is the coming to, to himself coming to himself, and that is the result of God the Father's own drawing, John 6, 44, of the learning which the Father imparts, John 6, 45, and of his own giving, in John 6, 65. So that foresight of faith does not eliminate the sovereign differentiation which God causes to be in his saving operations. Because on that supposition, it throws us back on God's sovereign will to work effectually to the exercise of faith. And I must say that again with emphasis, that it throws us back on God's sovereign will to work effectually in us to the exercise of faith. And consequently, there is no escape from the pure sovereignty of God's will in salvation by this view of foreknowledge. And it is simply exasperating how glibly people will refer 
to this foresight of faith as something that as it were is provides the escape from the pure sovereignty of election from unconditional election and supposed to provide a basis for election as preconditioned by God's foresight of something that belongs to man's own sovereign autonomy. And uh, it is not only exasperating, it is tragically sad how men who profess, of course, and in some cases able exegetes who profess to believe the scripture think that that is an exegetically tenable interpretation of, uh, of uh, this whole subject of election and foreknowledge. The most significant passage, of course, and the passage that is most frequently appealed to is uh, Romans 8.29 whom he foreknew, that is, God the Father, whom he foreknew he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now I have an apology to make at this point because what I'm going to say in the next few minutes is to a very large extent a reproduction of what is already in print in the volume on Romans. Um, the commentary on Romans, but I, before going on to other passages that I have not yet dealt with anywhere in writing, I think it is necessary for me to, to uh, repeat what I have in the commentary on Romans, and, and repeat it, of course, not slavishly, but with some slight alteration, uh, because even... Uh, I can't assume that uh, all of you have read that commentary and uh, perhaps for those who have it will not do any harm to have a little repetition. I have found in teaching that repetition is one of the basic laws of instruction. Um, now in connection with this passage there are these observations to be made. First. It is to be noted that Paul says, Whom he foreknew, who's proagno, whom he foreknew. The persons in view, therefore, are the object of the verb, foreknew. And they are the object without any qualification or further characterization. The view that supposes foresight of faith or foresight of persons as believing is required to supply a characterization which the apostle does not add. And unless there is a compelling reason for that addition, we have no right to append it, that is, exegetically speaking, unless there is a compelling reason for the injection of a an implied characterization. We have no right to insert it. That it would be exegetically unjustified. 
we must ask the question, is there a meaning of the word foreknow that can properly belong to it and which avoids the necessity of importing something that has no warrant in the text itself? If such a meaning can be found, a meaning supported by Scripture, then an interpretation based upon the need for a qualifying addition is ruled out. And that alternative we find to be the case. There is ample evidence in the Scripture itself for an interpretation in which whom he foreknew is intelligible and appropriate without any further explanation or characterization. Now, second in connection with this subject, foreknow is a compound in which the word know is the main ingredient. The first part, both in English and in Greek, indicates simply that the knowing is beforehand. Prognosko or foreknow. So it is necessary, of course, from every, from every standpoint of good exegesis to focus attention on the term know, which is the main ingredient of the compound, and determine its precise force. Now, it is obvious that this word is used frequently in Scripture in the sense of simple cognition, simple uh, uh, knowing without any further uh, characterization. But it is also used very often with a richer meaning in which the thought of distinguishing affection and will enters. And when no is used in that sense, there is obvious differentiation in the word itself. And the instances are simply numerous in both testaments. And I assume <coughs> that you know of these. I'll not wait to cite them. The distinguishing meaning lies therefore on the face of the very word know, and it means to know with distinguishing regard, affection, and purpose, and comes to be synonymous with love. And this is all the more apparent in the Old Testament when this distinction that belongs to the use of the word no is frequently expressed by the word love. It is a, a datum, I haven't got this in the commentary, uh, but it is a datum that uh, I think is all important in this connection. It's very significant that sometimes in the Old Testament with respect to God's distinguishing love it is the word no that is used, the Hebrew yada. And in other instances, with the very same intent, with the very same application, it is the word love that is used, aha. And there are numerous instances of that. that and, and of course, therefore, the inference is inescapable that to know is the same as to love. Because in one context it is the word love, referring to the very same action of God, and in the other it is the word to know, the two well-known Hebrew words, Nahab and 
yada. I say, therefore, the interest, the, the inference is inescapable, that they are synonymous. And to know beforehand, taking account of the, of the preformative, uh, of the pre, uh, the uh, preformative preposition. To know beforehand is to know with peculiar regard and love from before the foundation of the world. Can mean nothing else in this instance. Then third, corroboration of that can be derived from Ephesians 1.5, which is, I believe, a very close parallel to Romans 8.29. In Romans 8.29, you have whom he foreknew, he also did predestinate. That is the conjunction. Whereas in Ephesians 1.5, you have the expression, in love, having predestinated us unto adoption. I think that is the proper construction. And in that instance, Paul intimates that predestination is conditioned by love and springs from it, in love having predestinated. When foreknowledge is interpreted according to the analogy of Scripture and the terms of the passage, Romans 8.29 expresses the same relationship with the additional emphasis upon the coextensiveness of this love and predestination to be conformed to the image of the Son. In Ephesians 1.5, the emphasis doesn't fall so much upon the coextensiveness but upon the conditioning character of love, in love having predestinated. Whereas in Romans 8.29, a good deal of the emphasis falls upon the coextensiveness. Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Now, there is no duplication of thought in either passage, either Romans 8.29 or, Rome, or Ephesians 1.5. The love focuses attention upon the electing grace, the predestination upon the high destiny to which those embraced in this electing love are appointed. And the order of thought is similar to Ephesians 1.4, preceding verse to Ephesians 1.5, where election in Christ is said to be the end, be to the end of being holy and without blame. In other words, electing love is not fruitless affection. It's not fruitless emotion. It always moves to a goal commensurate in magnitude with the love that impels. And surely that is the thought in both passages, Romans 8.29 and Ephesians 1.5 and uh, that that sequence is, is present, is corroborated by Ephesians 1.4. Then fourth, the idea of mere foresight of faith does not comport with the governing thought of Romans 8.29 and 30. The accent in that passage falls upon God's determinate action, upon his monergism, 
cannot sufficiently emphasize that. It is God who predestinates, it is God who calls, it is God who justifies, it is God who glorifies. And that emphasis appears in confirmation of the assurance given in Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Foresight, this this uh, diluted notion of foresight. However true of God it is in itself. Nevertheless, suggests a passivity that is out of agreement with the total thrust of the context in Romans 8.29. Only the efficient action involved in electing love measures up to the requirements of the context. In other words, it is not the foresight of what will be, but the foreknowledge that causes to be. And only that concept of foreknowledge measures up to the requirements of the context where the emphasis falls patently upon the efficient action of God and the efficient action of God alone. It is perfectly true, of course, that only God foresees all that comes to pass. But my point here is that in this context there is much more than the foresight of what comes to pass. There must be the determining action at the very fountain of this whole process of salvation. The determining, determining action that measures up to the quality of the other actions mentioned, namely predestination, calling, justification, and glorification, uh, all of which, or, uh, uh, all of which uh, proceed from God's determinate purpose referred to in verse 28. Now I go to Romans 11.2. Hath God cast off his people whom he foreknew? Whom he foreknew? Here the reference <coughs> to the people whom God foreknew is most appropriately taken of the people of Israel as a whole after the pattern of Romans 8.29, namely those beloved for the Father's sake. Every consideration would point here to the conclusion that the choice of Israel in love, copious evidence of which is given up elsewhere, is in view. Hath God cast off his people whom he foreknew, namely Israel as an ethnic entity. The notion of mere prescience is in this instance obviously inadequate. And although the full force of the distinguishing love of Romans 8.29 cannot be applied to Romans 11.2, yet the same basic meaning holds, namely the love on God's part 
by which Israel had been chosen and set apart after the pattern of a pervasive emphasis in the Old Testament beginning with Deuteronomy 4.37. What is in view in Romans 11.2 then is the theocratic election of Israel. And Paul is assuring us that the love animating this election has abiding relevance and is the guarantee that Israel has not been finally rejected. I think this is additional evidence for the pregnant force of foreknew, of foreknow, uh, which we find absolutely necessary in Romans 8.29. Now I come to 1 Peter 1.20. 1 Peter 1.20. This uh, passage, of course, refers to Christ. Very specifically. 1 Peter 1.20. You remember how Peter in the preceding context refers to the blood of Christ but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot foreknown foreknown before the foundation of the world or foreknown indeed before the foundation of the world but manifested in the last times on your account. Now, I think it's so this doesn't bear so directly upon our subject. The meaning that becomes apparent in this case is very important. In this instance, foreknown is contrasted with manifested. Foreknown, indeed, before the foundation of the world but manifested in the last times on your account. The distinction is between design from eternity and realization in the fullness of the time. That's obvious. Foreknown before the foundation of the world, but manifested in the last times on your account. There's no question about that but the contrast is between design from eternity and manifestation or realization in the fullness of time. Now, it is apparent that the notion of foreseen before the foundation of the world would fall far short of Peter's intent. The thought is sure that Christ was chosen and provided before the foundation of the world but was manifested in the end of the times in the last times if the idea expressed by foreknown does not in this instance rise to that of foreordained it is so close that the difference is scarcely perceptible in any case, this instance shows that foreknow can properly express the thought of the ordination and appointment 
of God's design and counsel from eternity. I say that again, this particular instance shows that Forlow can express the thought of the ordination and appointment of God's design and counsel before the foundation of the world. Now, there are two instances of the use of, an, of other verbs, but I'm going to pass over that. If you have any question about that, the, the two verbs are proorao in Galatians 3.8 and problepo, problepo in Hebrews 11.40. And it would be quite interesting to look into these, but I don't have time just now and I'll just have to pass over. Now, we come to the instances of the substantive, prognosis, as distinguished from the verb prognosco. And, of course, the two instances in which the substantive occurs are Acts 2.23 and 1 Peter 1.2 dealing now particularly with the substantive. The usage respecting the verb in each instance, which we have studied, demonstrates that in the New Testament the term possesses an active and ordaining force that our English equivalent does not of itself readily suggest. That is what we found in our examination of the verb. Now that must be borne in mind when we deal with the substantive, because the meaning of the verb creates strong presumption that the same force is present also in the noun. <coughs> and it should also be noted that Acts 2.23 I should quote it to remind you. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, as it is in our A.B. This passage in Acts 2.23 is distinctly similar to 1 Peter 1.20, in that predetermining counsel of God respecting Christ is the thought in both passages. In 1 Peter 1.20, may I remind you, foreknown before the foundation of the world but manifested in the last times. In Acts 2.23, delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And 1 Peter 1.2 is similar to Romans 8.29 in that foreknowledge is conceived of in this passage as conditioning election just as foreknowledge in Romans 8.29 conditions predestination. Now that is a factor that must not be discounted that there is a certain parallelism between 1 Peter 1-2 and Romans 8-29, also in the one it is the verb and the other the substantive, and that parallelism cannot be entirely discounted. So we come now to Acts 2-23. 
him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Prognosis. I have several uh, uh, observations. First, in this passage, the term indicates that the counsel of God involved in the crucifixion of Christ was prior to the event. It was beforehand. And, of course, uh, the analogy of the other passages, Ephesians 1, 4, 1 Peter 1, 20, would require that this priority be conceived of as eternal before the foundation of the world. That's the first observation. Then, second, the words with which foreknowledge is conjoined, namely determinate counsel, or as many boulet, denote the immutable purpose and decree of God. Determinate counsel. Ordained counsel, literally. Stronger terms to express predetermination could not be found in the New Testament or even in the Old. I don't suppose that Paul, that Peter had stronger terms at his disposal uh, on the occasion of Pentecost. Now, when you take into account that emphasis upon predetermined counsel or determinate counsel, it should not be argued that appeal to God's foresight of the crucifixion and of all the circumstances would be inappropriate in this context. For knowledge in the diluted sense could properly draw attention to God's eternal omniscience in order thereby to assert that the efficient decree referred to in determinate counsel, was made in the light of God's all-comprehensive knowledge of events and implications. All I'm saying now is that it should not be argued that the reference here to mere foresight would be inappropriate. It would be brimful of meaning. But, that notion of foresight, of foreknowledge, interpreted as foresight, does not take proper account of Peter's construction here. It was, Peter says, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge that Jesus was delivered, and the agency or instrumentality that is exercised by the determinate counsel is applied also to the foreknowledge. Now, exegetically speaking, that is, I believe, an all-important datum. It is the construction. But it implies for the foreknowledge an efficiency comparable to that of the determinate counsel. The mere notion of prescience 
does not possess that quality. And so I say that as in Romans 8.29, the thought requires an active determining element of which prescience, foresight, falls short. So it is not simply conjunction of counsel and foreknowledge that the text speaks of, but a conjunction of determining decrees. And foreknowledge, for this reason, requires the strength of foreordination. It may not be objected that then there is virtual duplication, not at all, because it is characteristic of Scripture to emphasize something by adding a virtual synonym. Here, however, this is not necessarily the case. For knowledge points to the preordination, determinate counsel to the immutable decree. Get the point. For knowledge to the preordination and determinate counsel the immutability of what is involved. Then third, it is very significant that the writer of 1 Peter 1.20 is the speaker in Acts 2.23. And the determinate force of foreknow in 1 Peter 1.20, foreknown before the foundation of the world, is an index to the meaning of the substantive in Acts 2.23. Since the two passages deal with God's counsel respecting Christ, conclusive evidence would have to be available if differentiation on the question at issue were to obtain. And I say this evidence does not exist. Evidence for differentiation in these two passages does not exist. And as I have maintained above, the considerations point to an identity in respect of active, determining will. Now fourth, fourth in connection with Acts 2.23, a fourth consideration supporting this notion of determinate foreordination as the idea in foreknowledge itself. In this, uh, in this uh, instance, I am appealing to Acts 4.28. You remember where Peter likewise says, Against thy holy child Jesus, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the children of Israel and the Gentiles, were gathered together to do whatsoever thy hand and counsel foreordained to come to pass. Whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel foreordained to come to pass. I'm dealing with that as a somewhat parallel passage. That's all I'm saying now. It would not be legitimate to press unduly the analogy of Acts 4.28. It is conceivable that the terms of Acts 4.28 were intended to express foreordination in a way that Acts 2.23 does not. That's conceivable. Yet, since other considerations, events, 
that foreknowledge in Acts 2.23 carries the force of foreordination. It is not possible to discount the unequivocal terms of Acts 4.28 in the interpretation of Acts 2.23. They both reflect on the same subject. That is obvious. And uh, <coughs> Peter is the spokesman in both instances, or at least speaker is, uh, Peter is the speaker in the one case, and he is closely associated, if not the actual spokesman in the other. And then there is the, the proximity in the literary composition of the book of Acts. I say, therefore, it would be natural to regard them both as enunciating the same doctrine, and if so, the foreknowledge of Acts 2.23 would have to perform the service of foreordained to come to pass in Acts 4.28. Now these are the considerations I am pleading in support of this interpretation of Acts 2.23. It must be concluded that the exegetical considerations claim for foreknowledge the same determinant, for, determinant force as is apparent in the use of the verb foreknow in the passages which we are already discussed. Now we come to 1 Peter 1 2. 1 Peter 1 2. And I take it that in 1 Peter 1 2, prognosis, foreknowledge, foreknowledge of God the Father goes along with uh, elect sojourners in verse 1. Proceeding on that assumption that uh, the foreknowledge of verse 2 is to be construed along with elect sojourners in verse 1. Then the foreknowledge of God is to be regarded as conditioning election and as causally prior to it. That is, logically prior to it, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In uh, sanctification of the Spirit, is it? Well, come to that later. Well, that's my point now, that uh, election is being is conceived of as conditioned by this foreknowledge. Now, as indicated earlier, the similarity to Romans 8.29 and by implication to Ephesians 1.5 is quite apparent. The considerations adduced in connection with Romans 8.29 against the notion of mere prescience would surely be again valid in this instance. Foreknowledge here is not qualified in any way more than for no is in Romans 8.29. And the pregnant meaning applies as much to knowledge as it does to the word no, to the word for knowledge as it does to the term for no. Then second, in 1 Peter 1.2 there is another factor pointing to the active force of the term for no. Uh, the term foreknowledge. 
The foreknowledge of God the Father, it should be noted, is coordinated with sanctification of the Spirit and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now I better, <coughs> I better read the, the verse in order that that may become apparent. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect sojourners of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Now, what I'm dealing with is this particular factor pointing to the active force, namely this coordination. Now, foreknowledge should, I think, properly be conceived of as the source, or at least the pattern of election, sanctification, the sphere within which it comes to effect, or the means by which it is operative, and sprinkling of the blood of Christ as the end to which it is directed. Oh, I think that is the thought. That foreknowledge is the source or pattern, uh, sanctification the sphere, and sprinkling of the blood of Christ the end to which this is directed. We cannot think, therefore, of foreknowledge in less efficient terms than sanctification of the Spirit and sprinkling of Christ's blood. That because of the coordination. Now, there would be something incoherent, uh, something incompatible with the total emphasis if foreknowledge, which is so closely coordinated, were of less efficiency than the sanctification of the Spirit and the sprinkling of Christ's blood. So, we find in this case, again, what has been apparent in other contexts, namely, the active force that foresight does not possess. That is, bare foresight or bare precognition does not possess. It is that quality that imparts to the foreknowledge of God the Father the efficiency in reference to election which the construction would lead us to, its, to expect. The, the quality of efficiency for knowledge is itself causally operative just as is sanctification of the Spirit and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Then third, since the predetermining character of foreknow and foreknowledge is necessary in the other instances, we would expect the same meaning in 1 Peter 1-2. And unless compelling reasons for exception should exist, the analogy of usage would throw its weight in favor of the same interpretation. I think it would be utterly unjustified, exegetically speaking, to try to put into 1 Peter 1-2 a meaning that is not borne out by the other passages that we considered and that is really alien 
to the emphasis which appears in all these other passages. The upshot then is, may I conclude just with a very brief word, the upshot of our study is that foreknow and foreknowledge, when applied to God in Scripture, designate much more than what belongs to the attribute of omniscience. In each instance, these terms refer to God's determining will. And so each passage views this will from the aspect appropriate to its own context. Yet the terms take on the strength of foreordain and foreordination and in some cases express the very same thought. It is also significant that they are used only in reference to what falls within the sphere of salvation. So in terms of scripture usage, and strictly speaking, foreknow and foreknowledge do not designate God's all-inclusive determining will, but his will as it concerns the provisions and objects of saving purpose. Not, of course, that the term foreknowledge could not be used with reference to God's all-inclusive determining will, but just as a matter of observation, it is rather interesting to note that it appears, that particular concept appears in connection with the provisions and objects of saving purpose. And that, I would say, for the very purpose of emphasizing the differentiation that belongs to the very ingredient of this particular term, the main ingredient, namely know with distinguishing affection, with distinguishing purpose, and with a distinguishing end. Thank you very kindly.